we have all these patients that that are really suffering and a lot of what we do as pain doctors is very focused on pain scores and pain intensity and how do we how do we modulate patients pain perception and the thing that excites me about psychedelics is it may be a different way of looking at how we approach pain and as a way of improving or, or reducing the suffering that is associated with pain, even if it doesn't actually lower pain scores, which I think is at least one possibility, but is a new way of modulating pain at a different level, instead of the spinal cord, at the level of these intrinsic brain networks. And, and I think that even if this doesn't end up panning out as a therapy, I think we're gonna actually learn a lot about chronic pain and how we approach the management of chronic pain through this kind of research. It's neuromodulation, but not in the way that we typically use the word neuromodulation. You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers, focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving holiday. Welcome back to Pain Matters. I'm your host, Dr. Shrabni Jabakula, anesthesiologist and pain physician at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. This episode, we are going to be talking about the use of psychedelics in pain treatment. I want to welcome back Dr. Mustafa Brochwala as my co-host today, and I'd like to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Timothy Furnish from the University of California, San Diego. I've known Tim for several years now, and it's really a treat to have him on the show today. I really respect him. He's an inspirational educator, a thought leader in innovation and research, and a strong patient advocate. We are sure that all of this is actually going to come through in our conversation today. Yeah. In addition to that, he's a clinical professor of anesthesia at UCSD, the associate chief of the pain division at UCSD. And most interestingly for this podcast, he's the medical director of the Psychedelics and Health Research Initiative or PHIR at UCSD. Welcome, Tim. We're really excited to chat with you today. Uh, Shravni and Mustafa, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Furnish. And so, during one of your lectures recently, you said chronic pain becomes one's identity. And that's something that really spoke to me. You know, you're right. For pain patients, the disease state does become one's identity. And it, it almost becomes a purpose in life. Yeah, it's not like we see this happening necessarily with hypertension, for instance. Yes, patients know that they have high blood pressure and things like checking their pressure, taking their pills, exercising maintaining a healthy diet, these might become priorities, they may become a significant part of their daily activities. But I wouldn't say that the disease state is really becoming an identity, not really not the way it happens for our chronic pain patients. So tell us a little bit more about the neurological connections and frameworks that are different in chronic pain patients. And why is it that pain actually becomes an identity? So pain is such a personal thing. And it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to describe it and um, and have other patients understand what they're going through. But there's also a very neurologic component to this. So we have these networks in our brain 
that allow us to function in the world. And the default mode network is one of them, salience network, etc. These are different brain areas that essentially communicate with each other uh, that allow us to process information that comes in from the outside, but also processes kind of our internal thoughts about ourself and memories. And when we think about past events and what we're going to do in the future. So for instance, if we're sitting in a lecture and we're kind of bored and we're thinking about what we're going to do later on that day, or we're going to go for dinner, or we're perseverating on the fact that our back hurts and we've been sitting in this chair for a couple of hours and what it's going to feel like when we go from sitting, go to stand up after we've been kind of sitting motionless for a while, that is one of these internal networks or the default mode network that's processing that information. It's also, though, the network that's very involved in consciousness. And so when we are kind of contemplating our own self and we're focused internally, that's also the default mode network. And as we develop chronic pain, that default mode network can get into overdrive and the connections that would normally be there can become altered. And so when, when we've done, people have done fMRI scans of individuals with various chronic pain states, uh, we can see in these fMRI scans that these brain areas and the connections between them and the activity between them doesn't look the same a variety of chronic pain states compared to people who don't have chronic pain. And that's why these brain networks, especially the default mode network, could be a significant new way of kind of looking at the dysfunction of chronic pain. I think this is really a critical piece for everyone to understand as we move forward in this discussion today. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's the perfect bridge uh, into the topic of psychedelics with you. You know, psychedelics and pain specifically is such a unique area that not many people are studying. It's, it's new and some might actually call it controversial. So can you tell us sort of how you got involved in studying this? Sure. So it's, it's a very per personal story. Um, it really started with a patient of mine. Um, so this was an individual who's actually a faculty member at the, the university who was riding an ATV out in the desert and rolled the ATV and crushed his leg and was in the hospital for a number of weeks. The surgeons tried to save the leg and ultimately they were not able to and he ended up with an amputation. And he had a lot of pain during that whole process. And once he went home, developed pretty significant phantom limb pain. And he had been on opioids and gabapentinoids and antidepressants, and he tried cannabis. And while he was in the hospital, at least, he was on some ketamine infusions. And none of that really did hardly anything for his phantom limb pain. My recollection of this, although his story, I think, has... has changed for, at various points in time. But my recollection is that he really was just looking to escape um, and decided to go out and use a good sized dose of uh, psilocybin or mushrooms, psilocybin containing mushrooms. And all of those other things that had barely touched his phantom limb pain 
but the psilocybin took his phantom limb pain to zero for a number of hours, which obviously, you know, for us in the world of pain is pretty dramatic. Most of the things, you know, when people have severe pain, especially chronic pain, most of our drugs, we're really happy if they get, you know, 30, 50% improvement. Um, and so to get 100% improvement was, was definitely interesting. What was more interesting is that over the next few weeks, he continued using lower doses of psilocybin and combined that with mirror visual feedback therapy or mirror box therapy. And within four to eight weeks, or four to six weeks, really, his pain was completely gone and the phantom limb pain never came back. Uh, and so this was a very dramatic, you know, anecdote for sure. And I started looking at, do, is there something to this? Could this possibly be an analgesic? I'd never heard of that before and realized that there actually is some historical data that was, you know, there were clinical trials that were done back in the 60s uh, with, with LSD and phantom limb. There were some small clinical trials done in the U.S. with LSD and uh, pain related to cancer. And there have been some kind of small observational studies looking at cluster headache with uh, various psychedelic agents. And so that was sort of the my introduction to this as a possibility. This is just really interesting because, first of all, a lot of times our patients are scared to tell us when they've done something that maybe might be considered wrong or illegal or might brand them or you know, stigmatize them in a certain way. So that really speaks to the therapeutic relationship that you had with this patient, first of all. But second, I think it really speaks to the fact that we can learn a lot from our patients and they can really spark entire areas of discovery. Certainly during our conversation today, we're going to dive deeper into your work and the current literature. But before we do that, can you give us more insight into the background of psychedelics? These drugs have had various therapeutic applications across time and cultures. You've started to tell us a little bit more about the, a little bit about that, but we would love to hear a little bit more. Sure. So, you know, there are a number of drugs that get called hallucinogens, and ketamine is certainly one of them. It's a dissociative anesthetic. Uh, sometimes things like MDMA, also known as ecstasy, will get described as a hallucinogen. Uh, other people would call it more of an intactogen. It uh, accentuates um, sensory input more than it actually causes hallucinations. There are some people who would describe cannabis as a mild hallucinogen. But what we're really talking about, and I think what people are mostly going to look at in terms of pain, and what certainly has sparked a lot of a recent interest in the psychiatric literature uh, and with clinical trials for refractory depression, uh, alcoholism, anxiety related to cancer, are the serotonergic hallucinogens. And so these are drugs that work on the are agonists of the 5-HT2A receptor, uh, serotonin receptor. Uh, and so the major drugs are going to be uh, lysergic acid diethylamide or LSD, uh, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, uh, the uh, mescaline, which is what's in peyote, uh, which has long been used uh, as a more religious experience or religious part of religious ceremonies for certain uh, Indian tribes, 
in the North America, even uh, psilocybin and magic mushrooms certainly are part of a religious tradition in certain uh, ethnic communities or indigenous communities more in Central America. And then there are drugs like ayahuasca, which also have been used more Central America and South America in indigenous cultures. And so all of these drugs have a quasi-religious component to their long history. Certainly LSD is purely synthetic, and that's obviously a lot more recent. Many of these drugs were not even really widely known to Western societies until the early to mid 20th century. And in the 1950s through about you know the early 1970s, there was a, an intense interest in these drugs. And there was an, a number of studies looking at them, especially as a way to enhance the effects of psychotherapy or to be used as kind of in, uh, an adjuvant for psychiatric conditions. But as I mentioned earlier, there were a handful of studies looking at them as analgesic agents as well. So, you know, you kind of touched on these specifics of, you know, mechanism of action, but really, you know, what what is the, when you're talking about 5H2A receptor agonists, um, what is the downstream mechanism of action at play here? Um, is it perhaps neuroplasticity? Is it anti-inflammatory properties? It's a good question. We don't actually know. There, at least in animal models, there are some there is some possibility that the that there is some anti-inflammatory component to what these drugs are, are doing. Uh, they probably do have some effect on descending uh, pain inhibitory pathways. And so it's possible that all this is is a way of enhancing descending uh, pain inhibition, not unlike the way SNRIs work, like duloxetine, for instance. Although if that was the case, I would expect them to only work for the amount of time that they're active in one's body. And certainly in my patient's instance, and what some of these older studies have suggested is that they could last way beyond uh, the actual pharmacokinetic uh, duration or of the drug. Uh, so for instance, you know, if this somebody takes it once and they're noticing some sort of pain relief that lasts for days or weeks or months, that seems to suggest it's probably more than just a descending inhibitory effect. And what I think may be happening, although again, we're going to have to do a lot more research before we really understand, is that this is enhancing neuroplasticity in some way. And as we talked earlier about these intrinsic brain networks, like the default mode network, psychedelics have very profound effects on these intrinsic brain networks. And they can dramatically change the and enhance the connectivity between these various brain areas. And it could be that this increased activity is a little bit like hitting a reset button. And that these altered areas of functional connectivity can be reset into a more functional pattern by a good sized dose of some psychedelic agent. My suspicion is, and again, we'll need more research to fully understand this, 
that it may not be just the drug that makes the difference. And so a lot of the studies of psychedelics that have been done back in the 50s and 60s, but more recently, because there's been a resurgence in this in this area of research, really just in the past like five or six years, a lot of the psychiatric studies essentially paired the drug with psycho psychotherapy. And I, I will sometimes describe this as if it's enhancing a scaffolding, but you need the scaffolding there in order for it to really have a profound effect. And if you, in the world of pain, that could still be psychotherapy because we know that cognitive behavioral therapy will work for lots of things, but it takes a lot of effort. And if we have a drug that can really kind of turbocharge that effect, that could have profound long-term implications. It could be that it's not psychotherapy, or it could be that it's going to be different things for different conditions. Uh, I could easily see this or potentially see this turbocharging the efficacy of something like physical therapy. In the case of my patient, I think it was that combination of doing mirror visual feedback therapy, which worked but didn't last very long with the psychedelics that made this get better much quick, much more quickly and then persist. Tim, I think this is interesting, right? In the context of multidisciplinary therapy, using multiple agents, multimodal therapy, this is stuff we've been talking about for a really long time. Currently, you're looking at functional MRI imaging before and after the use of psilocybin in patients. Hearing you talk, I'm thinking there's probably even opportunity to pair that. So maybe functional MRI imaging with psilocybin plus another therapy, whether that's physical therapy or CBT or whatever that is. And looking at that before and after, I mean, I just think this is so exciting and this um, new area of research is going to teach us so much, but tell us a little bit more about your study and what you're seeing so far. Sure. Uh, so these are obviously incredibly difficult studies to get up and running um, because of the, the schedule one nature of the drug. Um, so it requires approval from the FDA and the DEA. And in the state of California, there's an entire state regulatory apparatus for doing controlled substance research, um, as well as the IRBs. Uh, so we're really just now enrolling. Uh, we're actually hoping to dose our first patient within the next couple of weeks. Um, but what the study is looking at is phantom limb pain. Uh, we will be randomizing individuals to a large dose of psilocybin, 25 milligrams. That would be not a microdose. This is that's a dose that would definitely induce some hallucination. Or they will receive niacin. Uh, so niacin, you know, it, it's going to be very difficult to completely blind somebody to the fact that they're not hallucinating. But we wanted to give them something that made them feel a bodily sensation, and so niacin will at least create sort of a tingling sensation and flushing sensation. Um, whether or not that's going to be a good blind, we'll have to figure out, but I'm not sure if there's really a, a good drug that would be a better blind. Um, there are certainly some people who have used stimulants like uh, Ritalin, for instance, or methylphenidate, but uh, that's, that's the blind that we've chosen. So uh, subjects will be 
randomized to receive one or the other. They come into our research facility a number of days beforehand, before we actually do the dosing session. And they meet two psychologists who will spend a number of several hours kind of preparing them for the actual dosing session. Those same psychologists will actually spend the entire day with them uh, during the dosing session, essentially monitoring them. If they're having any sort of emotional reaction to the drug, they can help talk them through that. And then once the effects of the drug are, are worn off, they'll go home, they'll come back a few days later, and they'll have an integration session with the, the psychologists who will sit down and kind of talk to them about what their experience was. None of that is really meant to be psychotherapy. It's really part of the safety mechanism to ensure that patients are well prepared for what a lot of individuals can describe as a very challenging experience. When people have, have subjects that have gone through psychedelic research studies a lot of them will describe the experience as life-changing and profound, but also unpleasant or at least challenging uh, from a, an emotional standpoint. And so we want to make sure that subjects are well-supported both beforehand, during the actual session, and afterwards. As a part of all of that, we're also doing fMRI scans. So a couple of weeks before the dosing session, and then again, a few weeks afterwards. And we're looking to see any sorts of changes in these intrinsic brain networks, like the default mode network. Are there patterns that look dysfunctional uh, or, or different than a, 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 not, a patient without pain beforehand? And are those patterns normalizing as a result of psychedelics? That nobody has ever looked at that before. Uh, we have two phases to the study. The first phase, individuals will have a single dosing session. And then once we've gotten some experience and have run, I think, 10 subjects, we're going to then do two dosing sessions to see if there is a cumulative response. And so subjects will get uh, one dosing session. A few weeks later, they'll be brought back and they'll be dosed again. And we'll do the fMRI before and after. Well, congratulations on getting this up and going because, I mean, people have trouble getting marijuana studies underway, so I can't imagine how difficult this is. Um, just, you know, before we go further, I want to put my public health hat on because you did mention all of the regulation that's surrounding this, and this is a DEA Schedule One drug. Um, Schedule One drugs are really defined as substances and chemicals that do not have any current uh, medically accepted use and a high potential for abuse. And so this drug scheduling is problematic and controversial for many reasons. It makes it harder to study drugs, for instance, as you've already mentioned, but policy changes take time. And we're going to have to really think about all of this as the information that we get about this drug and the research evolves. And I would love to just segue for a second into that and hear your thoughts on this process and what it will entail. Sure. I mean, the, the, the scheduling, obviously, as I mentioned, makes this kind of research much harder. I don't want to get super political, but I, I think it's widely held that there are political decisions that got made in the 1970s about what drugs to schedule. 
that were not necessarily completely connected to health data. And one could certainly argue that there was at least some evidence even before that happened that these drugs could have medical potential medical benefits, although we didn't have enough data to make that explicit, and we still don't. Uh, I would say I don't think that this drug is ready for the pain clinic uh, or any of these drugs. I think we need a lot more data. Um, but that's that's why we're starting to advance this kind of research. And, and let me say also, I don't really think that this is a drug that we probably ever will be giving somebody a prescription for and saying, go down to your local pharmacy and pick this up and just take it. There are a handful of case reports or survey data suggesting that low doses of psychedelics or microdoses might have some analgesic potential as well. But there are, I think, more concerning safety issues with daily continued use compared to very intermittent larger dose use. When we look at the risk of addiction from these drugs, a lot of the people who have studied that the addictive potential of these would put them at the very bottom of all the DEA scheduled drugs in terms of addiction potential. Um, if you try and give, if, if you do condition place preference in a rodent model and you give rodents free access to opioids or cocaine or even cannabis, uh, they may choose to actually consume that, especially cocaine and uh, opioids. They will actively avoid psychedelics because it's not necessarily a pleasant experience for them. Uh, and so, and there are not even people who are using these recreationally are very rarely doing it on a daily basis. Uh, they're mostly doing it quite intermittently. And if they're microdosing, they're doing it for perceived benefits that don't really have anything to do with uh, euphoria or even kind of altered perception. And, and I think, you know, on that note, like you said earlier, it's probably so important to educate patients, you know, going through this trial, you know, having the uh, psychotherapists alongside them and, and also preparing them to kind of go through this experience and uh, even relating that experience to perhaps any sort of clinical benefit from it. Right. So, um, and on that note, you actually had a recent uh, case series published. Uh, so there were uh, three patients and it seemed that they got some pretty significant anecdotal benefit from psilocybin specifically for their refractory pain, kind of like the story you were telling us um, earlier in the podcast. Um, and these patients were microdosing. So, you know, not taking a psychedelic or, or having a psychedelic effect. Based on that case series alone, of course, you know, N of three, but, you know, could you tell us a little bit about dosing or give us some insight in that regard? Yeah. So the, this was three individuals that were, had stumbled upon this on their own and were taking essentially sub hallucinogenic doses of psychedelics on a semi-regular basis for, in some cases daily, in some cases less than daily, but a lot more often than just once every few months, and who were reporting some significant analgesia 
when they had failed other other things. And so one individual had complex regional pain syndrome. There was an individual with spinal cord injury and then another individual with lumbar radiculopathy. And I think that that information is very helpful for us as clinician researchers as we look for potential signals and what we may want to study further. Uh, But as I mentioned, we really have no safety data for people taking these drugs on a daily basis over long periods of time. And so I I, want to caution people, we're not ready to recommend that people run out and do this. The 5-HT2A receptor was involved in the cardiac valve abnormalities that occurred with the fen-fen diet craze in the, whenever that was, the 90s, I think. And one of those drugs ended up being taken off the market as a result. And so we just, uh, sorry, not 5-HT2A, 5-HT2B. And and these drugs do interact with that same receptor. And so we need to understand much more about kind of the long-term implications of that. It could be that at some point we'll say, yeah, you know what? Taking a small dose of psilocybin on a daily basis really does seem to help pain when people have failed everything else. And maybe that will become a drug. And maybe we do prescribe it and they, t- you know, they go and fill it at the pharmacy and they take it on a daily basis. That's the whole point of us kind of doing these case reports is so that we can understand, well, what, what do we need to study next? We're really in the beginning of this process, of this evolution. And we, I agree with you, we have to be very careful what we put out there and history with the opioid crisis teaches us a very important lesson in pain medicine. And we can really only say what the data supports and what the um, research tells us. And we know that this information is always changing. And so as the information changes, we also have to be responsible for updating what we put out there. Um, as we saw with COVID-19, right? The, the information that we have, the science, it evolves and we have to keep up in terms of communicating what the science is at any given point in time. I think it might be too early to even put it into a pain curriculum, you know, uh, because there's not that much information. But I think, you know, in the future, we may see this more incorporated into our formal formal teaching. I would agree with you. I mean, like I said, this is not ready for the clinic. This is not really ready for the curriculum. We just don't know enough yet. But I think it there is a potential there that really does require uh, and and beg for more research and more understanding. And it could be that it provides us insight into how the brain changes when people have chronic pain in ways that will help us figure out other therapies down the road. You, the, the, you mentioned the opioid crisis and the opioid epidemic, and, and I want to actually highlight another potential parallel that I hope that we, that we will avoid, and that's cannabis. I think cannabis has potential value for some patients for chronic pain, but we made it this kind of natural product quasi-legal across the country without a whole lot of research to kind of guide physicians and tell patients, okay, well, you should take this dose and you should take it this frequently and you should use it in this particular formula or or via this route. And so, and and now there's no market incentive for a drug company to, to put money behind that research. 
patients are smoking it, which I think is not good for their health. And, and I hope we don't end up going down that road with the psychedelics to the point where we really impede our ability to get good data that really will get this, if it, if it works as a therapy that insurance companies will pay for and that most patients can actually afford and use. That's been a huge barrier for uh, cannabis research. Yep. And I think, you know, that goes back to the scheduling conversation um, because these schedule one drugs, they become so difficult to study. We end up in situations like this and we know that they can have issues associated with them too. So the car crashes, you know, when patients are smoking marijuana um, are just as bad, if not worse than without, uh, with alcohol. And so these are things we have to think about when we're thinking about balancing, you know, uh, allowing access to therapies um, and restricting them. And so there's a lot, a lot to think about. And I agree with you. I really hope that we don't go down that, that similar pathway with this research. You know, in our culture where the words addict and junkie are thrown around so often, even, you know, outside the world of psychedelics, uh, how do we go about destigmatizing this as a potential treatment modality for, you know, not just patients and physicians, but really society as a whole? I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. And I don't know that we need to destigmatize just psychedelics. I think when we use words like addict and junkie, that we're stigmatizing people who are sick and who have become dependent on a variety of things. And we make it that much harder for them to get appropriate medical care and to get the appropriate treatment for what is, you know, an addictive condition, uh, whether it's an opioid use disorder or uh, alcohol use disorder, the dependence on those drugs is a huge medical problem and probably far bigger than I than psychedelics probably could ever be. But I think that the stigma issue is a huge barrier to getting people into treatment. And it's, it's a huge issue for us as providers in actually approaching patients in a way that they can hear what we're saying. There needs to be a lot of innovation on that front. I know that some of the public health schools, like the Bloomberg School of Public Health, actually has a lot of initiatives surrounding stigma. And I'm sure that many other public health schools do as well, um, mostly surrounding opioids. But as we learn more about these other drugs, it's going to have to expand beyond opioids, right? This has been, first of all, just such an enlightening discussion. It's something we don't get to hear about a lot. So it's wonderful to hear from someone who's kind of on the front lines doing the research around all of this. I want to thank Mustafa for actually suggesting that we interview you because he heard your talk at Azra and was really inspired. And then we both listened to another podcast you did, which was excellent. So thank you so much for all of the insight that you've given us today. Any final thoughts or closing remarks from you? I just, I want to say thank you for, for having me on. This is the, it's always fascinating to get a chance to talk about this. And we have all these patients that, that are really suffering. And a lot of what we do as pain doctors is very focused on pain scores and pain intensity and how do we, how do we modulate patients' pain perception and the thing that excites me about psychedelics is it may be a different way of looking at how we approach pain and 
as a way of improving or, or reducing the suffering that is associated with pain, even if it doesn't actually lower pain scores, which I think is at least one possibility, but is a new way of modulating pain at a different level instead of the spinal cord at the level of these intrinsic brain networks. And, and I think that even if this doesn't end up panning out as a therapy, I think we're going to actually learn a lot about chronic pain and how we approach the management of chronic pain through this kind of research. It's neuromodulation, but not in the way that we typically use the word neuromodulation. So that is really exciting. And we will look out for everything you have coming out. And maybe we'll even have you back sometime soon to tell us more about your research. So thank you, Dr. Furnish, for being here. Thank you, Dr. Brachola, for being my co-host today. And thank you to the American Academy of Pain Medicine for this podcast. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters Podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.